Hey guys, this is Mike Mahaffey, the old bastard BJJ guy, here for BJJ Mental Models. Back in my day, we had to walk uphill in the snow both ways to get to the academy just to learn some crappy technique from a random purple belt. You kids have it so easy, because now you can just subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium and get tons of great audio courses to learn new techniques, enhance your mindset, and entertain yourself. You can even get personalized rolling reviews from some of your favorite BJJ Mental Models coaches, including me. It's like having your own seminar, you spoiled little whippersnappers. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe to BJJ Mental Models Premium right now, get off my lawn, and go train. Welcome to BJJ Mental Models, episode 64. I'm Steve Kwan. I'm Matt Kwan. BJJ Mental Models is your guide to a conceptual and intelligent jiu-jitsu approach, and we are coming to you live from lockdown in beautiful Port Coquitlam, British Columbia, Canada. Yeah, with a lot of time on our hands yeah, to talk about jiu-jitsu. Yeah, your, your gym may be closed, but let me tell you, we're going <clears> to <throat> probably have a lot of time for this podcast yeah. in the next while. <laughs> yeah, lots of time. And uh, for those of you who are on lockdown, most of you are by now, um, just wanted to make sure that you guys are aware of the deals that are going on right now. There's a lot of free instructionals you can get. Uh, Bernardo Faria's instructionals are available on BJJ Fanatics. You can pick a free instructional, which is really great of Bernardo. Uh, also on Fanatics Wrestling and Judo Fanatics, you can get a free instructional if you open account, which hopefully you already do because there's some fantastic instructionals out there. I already got mine. And also Stefan Casting's offering a free uh, instructional. I think it's mine, Rory's, uh, the submission formula by Rob and then Oliver Taza. So definitely check out Grapple Arts and Stefan Kesting and to find out how to get a free instructional, which yeah, is really great. I heard earlier today that Cowterra has, I think, opened up his academy for free. For, two weeks, for, I think. Yeah, for at least two weeks, which hopefully is going to be the length of this thing. I mean, I hope that by the time this episode go, goes live, this whole thing is blown over, but I'm very skeptical of that, unfortunately. Yeah. I'm just wondering, like, where did two weeks come from? Because everyone seems like most schools are saying... We're going to close in two weeks and see where we're at, basically. So yeah. I guess we're just looking to, looking to see what the number of cases... Uh, my understanding is... the curve, as they say. Yeah, my understanding is that that two weeks comes from a wait-and-see approach. It's not that people think this thing is going to blow over in two weeks. It's that we're going to need at least two weeks to understand how bad this really is. You know, there's some, there are some countries that have not handled this well, and they're totally overwhelmed right now. There's other countries that seem to have a pretty good handle on things. And it's going to vary from country to country. I mean, I know we've got a lot of European listeners and I'm terrified for you guys. I know also that we have a lot of American listeners and they're a, a bit behind the curve, but they're going to get really, really hit hard probably in the next few weeks. I mean, we should probably actually date this episode. We normally record several yeah, weeks in advance. This isn't coming out tomorrow, right? No, no, no. This is, uh, we're, right now it is March 15th that we're recording this. So probably by the time this goes live, it'll be like two weeks from now, a week from now. So yeah. uh, it's going to be interesting times for sure. I wonder where, where we'll be when this does come out. I'm, I'm assuming <laughs> full we'll, on apocalypse. Yeah, I'm assuming that we'll be in a, in a bunker somewhere. Now I, I think that it's going to be rough for a while, but I think ultimately like there's going to be, it's going to be hard, but I think ultimately it's going to be mostly okay at the end. I mean, the, the interesting thing is this is the first time in our lifetimes that there's really been like, uh, an event that everyone 
in humanity has to rally behind. You know, maybe the last time this happened completely was like the 1918 flu, right? I mean, I was thinking about Independence Day when we all get behind the Americans. Oh yeah, the aliens. That's right. That's right. The aliens. Well, that might be a different universe. I'm not sure, but yeah, it's it's going to be interesting because we're already seeing that a lot of there's a, there's a, a lot of cross border collaboration now. Like China just gave a whole bunch of their supplies and their their doctors to Italy to help them fight the crisis. So if there's going to be a silver lining out of this, it might be that people put aside a lot of their bickering and grudges and actually start to work together like decent people for once. So hopefully, hopefully, I'm looking for the silver linings. Um, it is March 15th today. I just the closed eyes of my March. yeah. I just I just closed my gym today and it was a tough decision and. Uh, Pretty much by the end of the day, I'd say 99% of the gyms in the lower mainland are, are uh, you know, closed. I can only think of actually one or two that are still open. So. Yeah, yeah. Th- things are moving fast. Like even on Thursday or Friday, people were talking about how, oh, you know, I don't think I'm going to close. I'm not sure I'm going to close. And then just... That was one of them. Yeah. And then just like dominoes, they just all started closing one after the other. It's like how... I think it was Wednesday or Thursday of this week. Everything seemed normal. And then all of a sudden the NBA closed and then Tom Hanks announced that he had this thing and then just one thing after the other and before he knew it all of the sports leagues were closed so it's definitely escalated quickly yeah I definitely felt like a lot of pressure to do it but at the end of the day when you think about it it's just you don't know what's going to happen and I also didn't want to uh, alienate students that said that they wanted to take time off or whatever and I don't know it's keep the lights on is kind of a weird thing to do. So yeah, yeah. I mean, my hope is that several weeks from now, we look back on this and we think, well, we overreacted, but at least we're glad that we did something. That's a far better alternative than the opposite where we fail to do anything and we just get destroyed. So I think it's right. By the the time this gets out to people, (laughs) shit's just going to be absolutely (laughs) insane. There's going to be no food. Yeah. Cockroaches are going to be the only people who are the only things that are left alive. There's going to be no toilet paper anywhere to be found. Yeah, what's the deal with the toilet paper? I let's, don't know. It's like up with that? it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy where someone decided that toilet paper was the thing you've got to hoard. And then suddenly because <laughs> no now some people were hoarding it, like everyone else had to. I went to the mall, I went to the to the store today and there was no toilet paper. The entire rack was empty. There was no paper towel, no toilet paper. Now, if you want food or if you want soap or anything that's actually going to help you, you can get that no problem. But if you want toilet paper, you're screwed. So yeah, it's strange. It is, I, it's I, like human behavior is just weird. And just the scenes that I've, I've, I've witnessed online at Costco, like <laughs> yeah. some of them are just crazy. So yeah, I mean, the stop thing, doing that shit, people. Yeah. Like if you're really concerned about coronavirus, maybe packing yourself into a Costco with 400 other people to buy toilet paper is not the best thing you can do to prevent the spread. Like that's probably not a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, let's talk about giving and receiving head. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I'll let you take this one. Okay. So we actually already took a shot at recording this episode. We were trying to play around with remote recording technology just in case things really go sideways. That way, at least we could keep recording. That was a total fail. So we're just doing this together now. Uh, we, so we already took a stab at this, but we'll try doing it again. So a topic that Matt had called out, which I think is actually a really awesome topic, is head positioning. And I will attempt to refrain from inappropriate childish jokes here. Now that they've been made. Now that they've been made. Yeah, (laughs) I've already got them out of my system. So what we're talking about here is how you can use your head as an offensive and a defensive weapon in jujitsu. Now, 
I found when I started jujitsu and when I look at people who are new on their journey, they're very grabby. They're very focused on what they're doing with their hands. And that's all they're really paying attention to because in our day to day lives, that's all you really think about. You know, you're not really putting a lot of thought into what you're doing with your feet or what you're doing with your neck. So when you're sparring with more junior people, you often find that the only thing they're thinking about is their hands. And as a result, it's pretty easy usually to pass their guard. And eventually these people figure out, well, you know what? I can actually coordinate my arms and my legs together and use them almost like a a four-limbed octopus, right? You have double the weapons then. And that is so critical when it comes to things like guard retention. It's the placement and the usage of your legs as well. But you can go even beyond that. And when you're fighting at a very high level, you've got to use every weapon that you've got. And the the last of these weapons that you have is your head. Now, it's not as strong as your arms or your legs, and I certainly wouldn't recommend getting into the habit of using it like a battering ram, but... It but has, you do. Yeah, but you But it has its place, right? Your head can be used as a distance maker. It can be used as a wedge to hold your opponent where you want them to be. And if you can use your head effectively, that basically frees up another one of your arms that you probably would otherwise be using to control your opponent. So, I mean, if you can pin your opponent using your head, now you've got two arms free to attack instead of one. And against good opponents that's going to make all the difference in the world. So Matt, this was a topic that you put a lot of thought into documenting and researching. So why don't you kick this off? I mean, I am, I am the head instructor. You are the head instructor. That is true. Yes. Uh, there's a good joke. Uh, so yeah, we're going to talk about a few, few ways that you can use your head offensively and defensively uh, when you're grappling. So, I mean, the first one is going to be uh, during takedowns and anyone who is well-versed in wrestling understands how important the positioning of your head is because essentially the head is the end of your spine, which is, mm-hmm. uh, like Dan Hurst says, the longest lever in your body. So when you start looking at your body as uh, levers and frames and things like that, it makes it, I think, a lot easier to, to understand the mechanics of everything. But essentially, you know, like I've heard it in multiple sports, wrestling, uh, hockey, any, any, any real activity uh, where people say, you know, where the head goes, the body will follow. And uh, it's really true. And it's important to understand that you can find ways to redirect your opponent's head, breaking their posture, and also use your head positioning to do things like uh, pinning your partner up against the wall or, you know, uh, deciding whether or not you can finish a takedown. So like, let's say, for example, the single leg takedown, probably the most basic takedown there is and and super effective. You know, if, uh, if you if you keep your head in a position where maybe you're looking down at the ground, you're always going to be, uh, in a position where you can get your posture broken. Right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, we actually mentioned it the last recording. I feel like we're talking about it all over again, but <laughs> reference to Andre Galval video, he just put out where he talks about how, when he does the single leg now, he basically keeps his posture completely upright, mm-hmm. which is something that I had never done before. When I learned how to wrestle, my head was usually, uh, you know, like, hairline on your opponent's chest area, depending on how tall they are, you know, in the armpit area or, you know, under their head, uh, driving into their neck. And Andre showed something where he's just completely postured straight up. And then there's no way that your, you know, your spine can be uh, manipulated. You can't be sprawled on, you can't be uchimata or anything. Uh, you know, I, have you ever rolled with Mike Lee? You know, I have my business partner. Not not that much, actually. When I rolled with him, he was recovering from that ACL injury, so he was basically kicking my ass with one leg instead of two. (laughs) Yeah, he kicks kicks a lot of our asses. Uh, You know, shooting in on a single leg on that guy is like a good, probably ninety percent chance you're going to get uchimata or or get caught with like sumigayashi or something like that. Um, And a lot of that has to do with how he's controlling your head, and uh, if you just 
scoop a single and keep your head straight up, it's really hard to get thrown. So, um, you know, in a ca- in a case like uh, in a situation where you're doing takedowns, the head position is super critical. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And you mentioned single leg takedowns, but of course, another obviously related example is the double. Uh, the position of your head is so crucial there, and it, this is something that is is very unique to jujitsu because in jujitsu, if if you botch that takedown, it's not just a matter of you're going to wind up on the bottom in referee position. Like your neck is exposed to chokes. You know, you're you have a lot of problems if you if you shoot on someone and your head is not in the right position. Like if you're looking down, because now your neck is exposed from a choke angle. Additionally, there's also like safety concerns, right? I mean, you got to be careful when you're shooting on someone because if like a bad sprawl can really actually injure you pretty badly if you're not careful. Yeah. And uh, that's why Galva was saying in his video, like, why would I want to shoot in on a guy when he can get, you know, on top of my head basically. And now he's sprawling on top of me and I'm just digging my myself out of a hole in terms of like uh, how you would structure your attack or structure your strategy for a match. It when you think about it, it really doesn't make a whole lot of sense in jujitsu because yeah. there is so many bad things that can happen. So, um, I find, you know, when you're talking about wrestling for BJJ, a lot of the high, uh, sorry, low risk, high reward type stuff, uh, the, the really, uh, you know, the really high percentage stuff is kind of where you want to structure your game. Yeah. The thing about jujitsu is that there's so many ways to lose. You know, there, there are so many ways that you can get caught going above and beyond things like winning by points and getting disqualified. There are just so many ways that you can get submitted in a match and your head is especially vulnerable compared to the rest of your limbs, right? Your arms and your legs, you can usually fight off a submission attempt to some degree, but having control over your opponent's head is a very, very, very big thing in jujitsu, mm-hmm. right? Like you mentioned, it is the lever directly to the spine. If you can get your hand around your opponent's head, even going beyond the, the threat of chokes, your ability to control and maneuver them yeah. is gigantic. Yeah, it's basically a system that is a form of control, kind of like a Kimura yeah. or, you know, a back control. I've, I've heard it referred to as a headlock series where basically yeah. you go for head control and you use that to maneuver your opponent into more and more inferior positions. It's yeah. an example of a leading edge, right? We talked prior about leading edges and how when you are passing or when you are being passed, it's critical to know which part of your opponent's body is like the first part that's going to hit you. And that's the part that often you want to focus your deflection efforts on. And the the trick with singles and doubles is you're usually leading with your head, which comes with a degree of risk because that Mm -hmm. is a very vulnerable part of your body. So a big part of successfully shooting a single is doing so in such a way that if it goes sideways, it's not going to be too bad for you. I don't shoot a lot of doubles, first of all, because I'm small and lazy and unathletic, but also just because I find personally the odds of injury and failure there are pretty high unless you're really aggressive and athletic. Whereas I like singles a lot more because you don't have to commit yourself to the point where your opponent can just squash your neck. You know, you can just grab the leg and then stand up and then your head is not really easy for your opponent to attack. Yeah, I I do love like a a beautifully timed double leg, but it It looks amazing. Yeah, it looks amazing. I, I, I do them, but I'm getting away from them just because of the reasons we talked about where it's just like, I don't want someone sprawling on me Mm -hmm. and, and being on my back and then being down from the beginning. Um, you know, th- things like blast doubles where basically you're hitting someone with your face. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the way that I learned double legs was actually literally hitting someone with your face and keeping, uh, you know, keeping good posture the entire way. I think a lot, the common mistake you see 
whether it's adults or kids, uh, when they're learning how to shoot is they drive in with their head down yeah. and they're basically reaching. And that's, you know, if you're having problems doing shots, that's probably the main thing that's going wrong is as you shoot in, you're reaching with your arms and you're, you're just leading with your head when really what you want to do is get close enough that your whole torso is in contact with your opponent while you shoot in. And then it's really hard to, for your opponent to sprawl on a, on a spine that's upright, right? And instead of uh, reaching, understanding that your arms are just exposed as levers if you do that, right? So getting physically close enough where you're actually grabbing with your, uh, I mean, I guess it's like that your core is doing the work yeah, and your, hand, yeah. your elbows are going to be close enough to your body. Like yeah. I've seen, I've seen, uh, I think it was a video by Kyle Dake, uh, who's like a really high level American wrestler. And he was basically just saying like, I don't even, st I don't even touch my opponent with my hands usually until my, my head is touching them in, in uh, from a wrestling point of view. And so it's like the head position from a wrestler's point of view is super important. And, uh, you know, sometimes in jujitsu, we shoot in from so far away. It's just, you're setting yourself up to get sprawled yeah. on. Basically. Especially in the gi where it's so easy to just block a person from shooting because you can just grab onto them and, you know, it makes it very, very challenging. But yeah, that is a mistake that I used to make where I would shoot for a double, but I would have my hands outstretched in front of me. And mm -hmm. I eventually was taught that that's not the way you want to do it. You know, really, if you hit a double properly, your timing needs to be good enough such that when you hit that penetration step, basically you body check the guy before yeah. your knee even hits the ground. Like if you're mm -hmm. having a problem where your knees are getting screwed up from shooting doubles, it probably means you're shooting from too far away because your knee is the first thing that hits the ground before you hit your opponent. Like really the trick with a, a good penetration is when you do it, you need to be close enough such that you body check the guy, like yeah. you hit him you before your knee hits the ground. And if you do that, then your head is probably going to be out of trouble. But the, the thing is the timing of a good double is, has to be so perfect. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard to do that when the gi is involved that I personally feel like it's just it's not my, my preferred strategy when standing with someone. It's just too easy for things to go wrong. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you can get a free wrestling DVD right now at wrestling <laughs> fanatics, which I'm is actually, amazing. I, I, I got the Steve Mako. Who's this? He's uh, I think the head, head coach, head wrestling coach at the American top team in coconut Creek, I think. Um, and yeah, he, he, I got his uh, foot sweep instructional and it's it's really awesome like he, he has really simple instruction and very easy to learn i think and high percentage stuff and foot sweeps are something that i want to work right. on so if you want to get highly good at underrated. wrestling lots of good stuff you can learn from there yeah yeah foot foot sweeps are highly underrated because they're so low risk right like if, if it doesn't work that's fine yeah we were talking before and i was saying like i'm not really great at ashiwaza but if you start like throwing it at your partner and just peppering them, then they have to respect yeah. it either way. It's kind of like a jab. Like it's, it, oh, it's totally yeah, like a jab. You can do it from a bit of a distance. It's very low risk. So if you keep yeah. doing that, then it keeps your opponent off guard for what you really want to do. For sure. And obviously like learning proper footwork and stuff like that. Like I think if you want to get really good at doubles and singles and stuff like that, you got to be able to time your, your setups, right? It's yeah. all about, you know, if we're talking nogi, then working your clinch game, working your collar tie game, that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, so get your instructionals. There's so many to choose from. I didn't know which one I, to get, but I, that was the only one on foot sweeping. So I picked that one. Yeah, I might have to pick that up. I, I actually had no idea that BJJ Fanatics had that much stuff. Oh, it's but crazy. They've got so much stuff. I mean, I kind of wonder how they actually are able to 
pay the bills because they make so much content. I mean, I'm, I yeah. get that a lot of people probably buy their stuff, but holy moly, like they, they've got a library basically. It's crazy. It is insane. And we've talked in the past about trying to actually absorb all that information. Yeah. Like right now I have like probably eight instructionals I'm watching and it's one of those things where you want to watch a video and you just you keep watching a video from each one, eventually just get nowhere. Yeah. You kind of, your yeah. brain sort of goes numb because you can't yeah. just have information peppered at you nonstop. Like you have to have some time to absorb and process. And I think that's one of the trick with these instructionals is that more content is not always better. That's, that's why, what I like about Rob's is that, I, <laughs> granted, I, I haven't even been able to get through the core formula of Rob's, but it's not just like an overload of techniques. There's a lot of just concept and strategy talk. Mm -hmm. And that stuff I find is a lot more easier to digest and to oh, recall. Sure. I think so too. And I think that, you know, like we've been doing this for quite a while now we're black belts. So it's like when we watch an instructional, we know probably quite a bit of it. Mm -hmm. And then now when I watch instructionals, I basically watch it for those, like, maybe you'll get it one moment if you watch an instructional for an hour where it's like, yeah. oh, that's a cool detail. Like, yeah. I, and I'll remember that detail because literally that's it's the only thing that me. stood out. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So that happens to me quite a bit. There's a few instructionals, obviously, where it's like learning a whole new language, like the lapel encyclopedia and stuff like that. And even honestly, even Gordon's passing DVD was kind of like that for me too. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, anyways, instructionals are good, but also watch, uh, footage. I think that's one good thing to do when you're mm -hmm. studying jujitsu. So also <clears throat> now we talked, we basically just talked about head positioning during takedowns. Let's discuss uh, head positioning during top pins and guard passing. So, um, you know, what's that old saying? Like when, when you're starting out, if, if maybe you had like a, an old, old school style coach who maybe didn't understand how to, you know, give the most sound technical advice, probably say something like be heavy or, you know, <laughs> put the pressure, <laughs> you know, put the pressure, lots of pressure now. It's like, well, but like, what is pressure really mm -hmm. in jujitsu? Like I weigh 165. If I'm going to roll with someone, I can't make myself 200 pounds. I have to make myself feel like 200 pounds. Right. And a lot of that is how you, uh, place your, your, your body position, like your, uh, your center of gravity. Right. And we're going to talk about head positioning with center of gravity a little bit later, but in this case, using your head as essentially, like you said, a battering ram, uh, there's many situations where you want to get your head. I, the way I describe it is you get your head so close to your partner's head that they can't frame away because if you drive in with your head, your head becomes the leading edge. Mm -hmm. And so your partner has to respect that. But what if you get your head in a position where they can't frame, then they basically just have this giant block in front of them, yeah, <laughs> just yeah. smashing them in the face. I, yeah. I, and, uh, yeah, usually I think head to chest is really common or even like the Pez dispenser where mm -hmm. you're just driving into your opponent's neck. Yeah. The, I, I love doing that. Right. Because one of the problems that I have so when using my head as a, a wedge, when I'm trying to pin my opponent from top position is I just don't like it when people push away on my head. I don't want them to elbow me in the face, you know? So I, I'm kind of close, too close. <laughs> yeah. But, but the yeah. thing is, if you get too close, they can't do that. Right. Yeah. If you're, if they're able to get their hands into your face or your elbows against your face, you're just not close enough. You need to be basically like within kissing distance, you know, you basically to the point where you would absolutely give the guy coronavirus. That's how close <laughs> you're trying to get. Right? That's right. Um, you're, you need to get so close in that they can't actually use their hands to defend anymore. And to your point, when you are, are that close, you can just ram the top of your head into their jaw and force their head to look away. And that is super effective because it breaks their posture at the same time. The way that I like to think of using my head in this manner is when you're applying force to someone, 
you want to minimize the amount of surface area that you're using. Like you don't want to be like a mallet. You want to be a scalpel. You want to have very little surface area in contact with your opponent. So the example is if I'm on top of you in side control, I don't want to just be lying on you like a blanket. Like unless I'm like 500 pounds, that's not going to work. What I want to do is concentrate all of my weight through my shoulder or my head, right? That's basically what's putting the pressure on you. If I'm sitting flat on you and like I'm, my weight is evenly distributed across your body, it's not going to be as much force as if I can concentrate all of that through my shoulder or my head. So mm. when you're a smaller guy, that's a, that's how you get that power. If you've ever rolled with a really experienced but small person and you been on bottom and thought like, I can't believe how heavy this person oh, feels that it's because that's what they're doing. They're basically concentrating all of their body weight into a very small surface area. Yeah. When you said that, it immediately reminded me of Bibby. <laughs> Just this guy weighs like what Bibiano Fernandez, we mentioned him before on the podcast. The guy weighs like 145, walks around probably 150. And when he's on top, it feels like he's like two. 230 probably yeah. it's crazy it's crazy the pressure and and the reason is a lot of it is because of how he's positioning his head because essentially you know how you're positioning your head is related a lot to how you're positioning your spine and your hips as well yeah, yeah. you know but usually uh if i like the analogy of a battering ram if your head is down driving in your whole spine and your whole hips are behind that if you know how to how to keep it straight yeah and, yeah and, and you can and drive, drive off of your right? feet too exactly so uh really important thinking about head positioning during pins and, what, and whatnot you know that that's something that happened to me when i was in portland when i got my guard passed by that guy uh and and just smashed that round guys paulo costa his name is from i believe san diego and he's uh like once he passed me i could never establish frames because of his head his head was so in my face mm -hmm. and i was just like holy christ this guy's like pressure is unbelievable and picked up a lot of good things from that match of what he was doing just like that old school pressure yeah, uh, yeah, just smashing you with his head, you know, and and it's really difficult to deal with something like that. There's just no way you can create frames because the leading edge is right there. Yeah, they're so close to you that you can't get your hands in to control the distance. It makes it really, really hard. I mean, I can feel the difference when I'm sparring with a, like a blue belt or a purple belt and they're really, really big, but I can still move them and make space. But then sometimes I'm sparring with like a 130 pound black belt. And if they get that close to me, I, I can't do anything. Like it's just a totally different game because mm. they, it is possible to get so inside that like none of your weapons work anymore. And that when you have top position, you generally want to take away space. This is something that was described to me a long time ago, which really resonated, which is when you're on the attack, usually your goal is to take away space. When you're on the defensive, normally your goal is to create space. Right. So when you're like mounted on someone or when you're on taking top side control, you want to be so in close to them that they can't even use their hands to fight you. And that's what allows you to use your head effectively. If you're getting pushed away, like the guy's like pushing your face away, you're not in close enough. Like you should basically be effectively headbutting the guy. Like that's how close you are. Yeah. Uh, two, two things I'll, I'll mention, like one, one of them is, I think that goes hand in hand with what we're talking about is like, uh, in Gordon's DVD, he's always saying pin the head and the shoulders. Right. And that's been a huge game changer for me is the idea of pinning the head and shoulders, especially when you're trying to execute a knee cut pass or, a, um, even like a, a, a smash pass or, you know, di different types of passing, um, trying to get your leg out from, from, you know, th three quarter or, uh, sorry, uh, three quarter guard or whatever. No, no. Three quarter mount it's positions like that where, you know, you just can't get your foot out of position. 
uh, because they're trapping you the last, basically on the last line of defense in their guard. And, and something Gordon shows is just smash the head and shoulders and drive all your weight up top. And it's so easy, so much easier to get uh, your leg out for guard passes and stuff like that. And the other thing is, if you are going to use your head like a, uh, a battering ram, make sure that your posture is also good because if your neck or your spine is round in any way, then you're, you're going to lose a lot of, uh, integral structure in your spine. So I always make sure that, you know, do something that Jeremy Kennedy said, which was keep the wrinkles on the back of your neck, essentially just so your, your spine's always engaged and it doesn't hurt to also, uh, you know, round your shoulders back a little bit too. That's kind of my go-to when I'm posturing inside someone's guard is chest out, shoulders back, you know, hips in type position. Yeah, that was such an effective way to describe it when Jeremy Kennedy was here. I mean, I, I think probably most listeners know who he is, but he's a former UFC fighter, well-known MMA fighter, also local in the Vancouver area. Matt and I have trained with him for years and he did a few wall wrestling seminars with Matt. And, you know, we all know that we need to have good posture and keep our head up. But something that Jeremy said was keep the wrinkles in your neck, right? He kept saying that over and over again. And by that, he meant like if, you know, you're your, your head should be positioned up so that the back of your neck is wrinkled. And that's just a really good way to think about this and to keep that in mind that that's in most cases, that's the posture that you're going to want to have. Like no, normally if your head is down, there are some situations where that makes sense. But normally speaking, if, you know, if your head is down, that it make, gives you weaker posture yeah. and it gives your opponent the ability to attack your neck or to sprawl Definitely. on you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just makes your spine more horizontal. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there, there are exceptions. Like, if you have side control on top of someone, of course, okay. you probably don't want to have wrinkles in the neck. But, like, if in a general situation, you know, you're, you want to have your head aligned with the rest of your spine. And that means that you don't want to be tucking your head down, right? That's basically, if you do that, it gives your opponent the ability to compress your head. I will say, though, there are times when, when I'm in like top side control on someone and I do drive my head down because I'm driving my chin into them. <laughs> And that's well, what Mike Lee does for everything. This guy uses his chin like a wedge, well, no, but, like a hook. But that's what that's what I'm saying. Like if you're on top side control, then your head would be down because you're using your head as a battering ram. But if you're shooting a double, for example, you would want to have your, your head up or if you're standing up. Basically, mm -hmm. what I'm saying is the position of your head, in most cases, you want it aligned with the position of the rest of your spine. Like if you're, yeah, you, you want to you have good posture, even if you're lying down on top of the person, right? Yeah. There's, there's very few situations where you want to have your head collapsed. You have bad posture. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, you're right there. But I think um, if it's one of those things where it's like, if you choose to do that, if you choose to round your neck because you're driving your chin into someone, you're still strong. It's not like you're yeah. compromising your neck, right? Yeah. You're, it's your choice. So you're already engaged in that yeah. position. And in that case, it's a bit different because your whole body is horizontal when you're on side control. Yeah. So if your head is also horizontal, that's not so crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in situations where you're like wrestling up or, you know, you're, you're doing sweeps and you've got to wrestle up into different, uh, single leg scenarios and things like that. There's so many sweeps that I hit like that. And, uh, like if your head isn't in position in, the, in those situations, it can definitely be compromised. I think it follows the same sort of line as if you're finishing a single leg from standing, you know, never driving your head down, uh, and getting underneath your opponent with your head, kind of always keeping it free. And, uh, you can, you know, you can even use it as a battering ram as well. When you're coming up, I love to drive my head into the guy's side mm -hmm. yeah, when, yeah. when I'm wrestling and into his armpit, because it just provides such a strong frame and it off balances them. So, so well, yeah, it's a good way to control where your opponent is because both of your hands are free. If you don't have to use your hand to control your opponent and you can use your head. Now you've got two hands to attack instead of one. Yeah. Like we don't really talk about wall wrestling very much, but in wall wrestling, head position is everything because mm -hmm. 
you're so close to your partner already that if your head isn't in position, you just, the whole position falls apart generally. Right. Yeah, so yeah. that was really cool too. And, and I, I think I mentioned before in this podcast, I don't know, I, I have the crazy idea of having a grappling situation, like a, an, a match where there's an actual wall there's there. There's one wall. I've yeah. heard this before. <laughs> I'd love it. That'd be so awesome. Not, not a know. cage, not all yeah. walls, just one single yeah, wall. One wall that can be utilized if you get it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. But, um, but yeah, like we don't really think about wall wrestling unless you come from an MMA background, but wall yeah. wrestling is fun to me. And, um, I like very it Very applicable in self-defense. Yeah, if, if you're into self-defense, you should definitely try wall wrestling because I think we lose track of the fact that in a real fight, you can't just stop and reposition and recenter the fight whenever you want or whenever you go outside of bounds, right? And I think we fail to consider exactly how much of an impact that actually makes in a real fight. Like what happens if you just run up against a wall? Because that is extremely likely to happen. And if you're a cage fighter, it's definitely likely to happen. And you can exploit that to your advantage. Oh, totally. Just like how you, if you take it to the ground, you can exploit that to your advantage if you do jiu-jitsu. Exactly. Right? But, but I think uh, being up against the wall is good because you can escape quicker if you need to. And, you know, you can really just do a lot of damage from there. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's good. I like wall wrestling a lot. Um you know, and we were talking about, uh, like head position, um, when you're pinning someone, but also just on top in the top position, like absorbing, uh, Kazushi and whatnot, trying to pass the guard head position is so important because it kind of dictates your center of gravity in a lot of ways. Like a prime example I really like is from the leg drag position. You know, if you, if you cross someone's leg across the center line, but then your head is off to, uh, the opposite side, a lot of the time your opponent can redirect your head away. They can start to granby and invert and sort of create space. But, um, bringing your head to the same shoulder that on the side that you're dragging the leg. So think about that for a sec, dragging the leg to one side. Then you put your head on that same side shoulder because your weight is across your opponent's center line. Now, they can't granby. They can't granby. And also your head is so close that they can't they can't push it away. It's yeah, one of my, it's yeah. one of my go-to things now. Uh, again, got to praise Gordon for that one because I saw that on his DVD and it works really good in the yeah. gi as well. I used to do leg drags a lot different. I did like a sideways leg drag mm -hmm. where you flare the leg and come up and you can kind of enter the crab ride from there. One of my favorite leg drags. But now I saw Gordon do it. You don't even need to, it's weird because it kind of breaks a rule. You don't really need to be in base on the other side with your foot. You can be on your knee and still not get swept to the side because your head is so overly compensated across your opponent's center line. Yeah. So it's like when I saw that, I was like, oh man, I didn't even think of how, how easy that is. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to just be on your knee. So bringing your head across the center line is a really great way to fin uh, pin someone's head and shoulders. Like this that. is something I've actually started playing with recently where I basically, like when I'm playing Kesagatame or something, I will basically turn and go belly down on top of the guy's face and I mean, it's, it's hard Sounds to, horrible. it's hard to describe, <laughs> but I'll like, I'll basically base on my head and my head will be like two feet away from the, the other guys, but yeah. he can't do anything. Like no, he can't, he like, can't defend. Yeah. Like, can't push off your face. Or yeah. Anything. Like when, when you get someone's arm collapsed across their body and then you hold them there, it is so hard to get out of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. And, and even like the float passing stuff, like if you, if you don't want to be susceptible to hook sweeps and things like that it's really important to understand where your center of gravity goes, right? If you're smash passing someone and your head's on the wrong side, you're going for a ride. But if you put your head on the proper side, it's devastating, right? Yeah. So that's, that's a big, a big thing too. If you're struggling like I was the first time I tried to uh, float pass, that can really, really help you. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And also, you know, using your head as a frame or as an, or as an obstruction, mm -hmm. we talked about how Mike Lee, 
<laughs> drives his chin into, into you. Like this guy will get on top of you in side control and it's like he's a goddamn vampire. He like <laughs> drives his chin into your neck and literally like like literally tries to make your life as uncomfortable as possible. Yeah. So I, I it just think, pisses me off so much. I think this is the key to a lot of uh. top pressure games. Like even from within the guard, I do this a lot and people hate it. Like, cause, cause the thing is, you know, people say, oh, you should never attack from within someone's guard. But the thing is, if you get so close to them that you're basically just ramming their head with your head, they can't armbar you because you're so close. You can just basically pressure pass from inside the guard. <laughs> and eventually, if you do that long enough, people are going to start panicking a bit and they're going to loosen up. And then, I mean, if you can get the guy to break the guard on his own, then your life gets a lot easier. So it's it's a situation, again, where with proper head position, you can get so inside on the other guy that he can't even attack you using the normal attacks that you think should be there. Yeah. And using, like, I use my head a lot to even assist with uh, controlling levers when I can't get like a direct control on the end of a lever. Like a prime example is, you know, the technical stand sweep from X guard where you basically, mm. uh, have the, the leg on your, uh, on your shoulder and then you pinch your shoulder and your ear together. Like that's yeah, a yeah. huge, uh, that's head position, a, a great head position to come up and, and, and just create a tighter clamp around that leg or as best clamp as you can. Right. Or even, uh, even like a, uh, the shoulder crunch sumigaishi that Gordon got on Bushesha, yeah. you know, he's really important to use your ear tra uh, pinning to your shoulder to trap the end of the lever yeah. there if you're going to do a technique like yeah. that. So. And the head is also a really good tool for uh, to use as a placeholder. Like if you need to reposition sure. your hands, this is something that I know Rob talks about a lot, which is the concept of placeholders. And basically the idea is unless you want your opponent to escape, when you let go of something, before you transition and bring that hand somewhere else, you better be grabbing onto something else. Like yeah. you need to be grabbing onto your opponent at all times. And the way I like to think of it is like, if you were trying to climb a rope, you can't just let go with both hands at the same time, right? You've got to, yeah. if you want to go, go up, you've got to let go with one hand while maintaining the other one. And then once you've got the new grip, then you can let go of the original hand, but you never ever want to let go of both hands at once. Yeah. And or you just lose everything. Yeah. And the same thing applies in jujitsu. And the nice thing about head position is in some situations, you can pinch the guy in place with your head while both of your hands are free. Like a good example is side control where you can, you know, if you can wedge the guy with your head and your shoulder, then suddenly both of your hands are free and you, it's a lot easier to reposition. Yeah. Just like you basically just described what you do when you're on someone's back. Like if you have yes. a, a seat belt or a double motorcycle grip, uh, your head is almost always a wedge on the other side of your opponent's head. So that's just like a a, a thing maybe you don't even think about doing it but you do it every time you get on someone's back with a seatbelt, and it's it's crucial to um you know control the back position and to also to escaping the back position um when when you're attacking someone with uh on the back with a some form of control seat belt or whatever if your head is not a wedge on the other side then there's essentially a, an avenue that your partner can use to escape his head which is going to be his mm -hmm. goal right um when you're controlling and escaping the back position i, I like to think of a, a common goal as like you know keep your chest on your partner's back if their if your partner's back can get onto the floor then your chest isn't there right so it makes total sense to try and keep your chest on your partner's back how do you do that by keeping your head in the proper position as soon as that as soon as your partner's head 
position improves, then you basically start to the position unravels for you being offensive on mm-hmm. the line. So it's yeah. kind of it's kind of like a, an obvious goal if uh, when you're maintaining. Yeah, it. but but a lot of people screw that up too, right? Because it seems intuitively like you would want to have your head right behind your opponents, but that doesn't work yeah. because then there's nothing preventing him from just rotating around into you. It is yeah. the fact that you've got like if you have a seatbelt, for example, it's the fact that you've got your arm on one side of the guy's head and your own head on the other side that's what wedges him in place so that you can keep him there while you're setting up attacks it's like henzo gracie said you want to be like you're trying to whisper into the guy's ear (laughs) basically you want to you want to have your head like your mouth right next to the guy's ear because in addition to being super creepy that also prevents (laughs) him from moving his head uh so it's a really effective way to control him and if, if you're finding that people are getting out of your back control a lot probably it's because your head just isn't in the right position yeah, I, so I got a Bernardo Faria uh, instructional off of BJJ Fanatics, and one of the things he says, he's like, "Okay, guys, so I want to whis- I want to go like I whisper in his ear a secret." <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's so awesome, and he uses it multiple times. I'm gonna whisper a secret in his ear. <laughs> maybe that's maybe that's just the way they teach it in Brazil, because <laughs> probably that's probably a comp- like I mean, you kind of used it in a, in a way yeah. there when you were describing it, but. Uh, yeah, promo code Faria free. For your instructional. <laughs> um, yeah, and uh, one thing we're you know we're talking about head position behind someone's back. This is kind of uh, there's parallels between this and one thing that I remember Danaher mentioning, which is like if you're going to be in uh, strong top pinning positions, whether it's even like half guard or side control mm-hmm. or whatever, you get generally a stronger pin the more perpendicular your spines are. So if you're lying right on top of someone in a half guard, but your spines are essentially in line with each other, your half guard will not be as uh, powerful as if you did like a full on hip switch and then Mm -hmm. we're laying more across your partner. And I think that there's some truths here as well when we're talking about rear mount, because if you're in rear mount and your spines are essentially lined up with each other, the way that I look at it is one side is missing a wedge. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like, uh, unless you have, uh, no, even even like a Kimura control, it's c- almost completely perpendicular. Yeah. And we all know how powerful, the, like, the crucifix is, right? So that's, you know, I guess that's kind of a a, a mental model that rolls rolls into different situations. Well, it's kind of dominant angles, right? It's a situation where, and side control mm-hmm. is probably the most obvious example of this. Um, if you are able to drive into your opponent and they're not able to drive back into you, you have a dominant angle. And that's very, I think it's what you're describing here, where you're kind of in a situation where you can put pressure onto your opponent, but they're not able to put pressure onto you. Yeah, I think you're just in a better position to like apply wedges and control. And especially now that we're, you know, we're speaking on the back, it's like the most common submission is probably rear naked choke or some kind of, some kind of choke from the back. And with, with, you know, have you ever gone for a choke without having your head on the other side? It, it just doesn't make sense. Like, yeah, yeah. If your head is right behind your partner's head and you try and choke them, there's, there's no way that that can work. Mm-hmm. And in general, we, I think we discussed on the pre-recording too, about how if your head is directly behind your partner's head, then in a real situation, he could just land a vicious headbutt if he wanted yeah, to, by yeah, just yeah. throwing his head back. Um, into one of the most vulnerable places on your body, right? But if your head is right next to your partner's head, it's almost impossible for them to to create an attack on your head, right? Mm-hmm. So it makes yeah. total sense, and for many reasons, to have your head next to your opponent's head and and kind of wedge their head in between your your head and the shoulder, um, and chokes. Both attacking and defending are the concepts are basically exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, and I mean the last thing we talk about. 
uh, with head, head positioning is the idea of height advantage. And this is kind of just the idea of when you're coming up for, for sweeps and when you are going for certain throws, you always want to have your head higher than your opponent's head or driving your opponent's head down into the mat, even as a lever is such a good way to get up on certain positions, because not only does it have, I find, uh, in certain situations, maybe I'm coming up on a single, I love driving my head down on the guy's face because it gives me or not face back of his head because it gives me a platform to kind of drive base down on mm -hmm. and it breaks their posture so it provides kind of a double attack there yeah and we talked about this again on version 1.0 of this episode where we talked about how when you're playing guard against a really stubborn opponent who's just on their knees and you can't sweep them you can't move them you can't get anything there's no rule saying you just have to sit there and attempt like a pendulum sweep or an arm bar or something. You can just get up. And that's basically where you gain the height advantage, right? If you can get into a situation where you either snap down your opponent's head or you actually just bail and then just effectively get up faster than them, it puts them in a really awkward position now where they have to make a choice. They either have to turtle or they have to push back down towards you, which opens up attacks, or mm -hmm. they have to fall back, in which case that's two points for you, right? So mm -hmm. it's very easy to forget that against someone stubborn, if they're in your guard and you just can't move them, you can just stand up. And by getting that height advantage, you can really open up a lot of opportunities. And as a smaller person, I find this is one of the advantages to being small is you can level change fast, right? You know, you might not be stronger, heavier, you might not even be faster than a big man, but you can probably level change faster than a big man can. And so that can be very, very handy if you're in guard. If you just bail and then just get up and you're suddenly you're on their feet and they're still st sitting there on their knees, that could be really, really bad for them. So something to think about if you're, if you've got someone in your guard that you just can't manipulate. Yeah. I even, I even think being in someone's closed guard, for example, generally the, the, the higher your head is, um, you know, the, the, the further away you are from the closed guard, like if you're playing a closed guard game, a lot of the time, the goal is always break the posture, bring the head mm -hmm. down. Yeah. Right. The, but, uh, the, the higher the head goes, the closer they are to standing up inside your closed guard and, you know, kind of breaking your guard. So yeah. the, 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 the idea of head position or, or sorry, height advantage kind of comes into play in a lot. Mm -hmm. a lot of different situations. Yeah. And it's interesting because it's, it's a concept that doesn't get taught, at least not that I'm familiar with. The first time I really heard anyone explain this was when you talked about Oliver Taza explaining it. And that kind yeah, of got me he thinking. he taught it to me and I was like, holy shit, that's, that's a, an idea for a mental model yeah. for sure. And that kind of got me thinking, you know what, that sort of makes sense. And it ties into some of the stuff that I've done that has been effective, but I just never really had a name for it. And I think that's a really good way to describe things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The Danaher guys are always so good at that, that type of stuff. Like they'll use terms and you're just like, wow, that term literally describes something that I do every time I roll, but I didn't have a word for it. I didn't even think to have a word for it. Yeah, right? definitely. So, definitely. Yeah, that's why they're best. Yep. Cool. Anything else you want to talk about on the topic of head position? No. No? Awesome. <laughs> okay. So just recapping what we talked about today, we obviously talked about head position. Um, the head I just thought about a joke and I was like, no, don't say that. <laughs> That's why I was so I was so wondering, weird. you seemed a little bit off there. I was like, should I? Uh, no. Let's yeah. uh, but head, head position, of course, is basically using that fifth weapon that you've got other than your arms and your legs. When at a very high level, when you get experienced, 
every advantage that you can have matters. And if you're using your head effectively, that's one more weapon at your disposal. And that can be the difference maker. We talked about leading edges. So when you are the one passing or pressuring, or when you are the one receiving someone trying to do this to you, it's critical to identify what the leading edge is and where the force is coming from. And a lot of the time, especially in the context of doubles and singles, that's going to be driving with your head. And when you do that, you also have to be careful because your head is vulnerable. So a lot of head positioning is about timing um, and it's about controlling the distance. And we'll get to that in a second. Uh, we talked about return on investment. Again, <laughs> some particular takedowns may have a low return on investment or a high degree of risk associated with them. Generally speaking, personally, just for self-preservation, I don't like a lot of takedowns that require me to lead with my head simply because they're risky. I mean, granted, if you're an ace competitor, you're going to use whatever weapon you've got. But if you're afraid to hurt, <laughs> then you might want to think about whether there are other less risky attacks that you can use. We talked about minimizing surface area. So when you're applying pressure, you want to apply it over as small an area as possible. And a lot of the time on top, that can mean driving with your head or driving with your shoulder or both. We talked about controlling the distance. When you get in close enough, it gets very hard for your opponent to push away and frame off of your head. So if you are going to use your head as an offensive weapon, that's what you want to do. You want to get in so close that they can't even use their hands. We talked about crossing the center. You know, if you can get someone's arm or their leg to cross across the center of their body, it totally breaks their alignment. And Matt, you gave a good example from top side control, where if you can force this to happen, it just, it, it's a total difference maker when you're trying to control someone on the bottom. We talked about placeholders. And again, this is the idea that you don't want to ever let all of the grips go at once. If you're going to let something go because you've got to move your hand onto a new grip, you want to make sure that you replace that grip with something else. And the benefit to head position is sometimes you can use your head as that placeholder. We talked about dominant angles, meaning that you can get a significant positional advantage just by changing the angle of your body relative to your opponents. You generally want to be in a position where you can put force on them and they cannot put force back on you. We talked about height advantage, basically the concept that sometimes just by getting higher up than your opponent, you can take away their ability to be effective. And probably one of the most obvious examples of where this happens is, is in the guard, but it can also happen a lot when standing too, right? I mean, it's, it can be counterintuitive because it might feel like if the person is beneath you, then they can get a shot on you. But that is not always the case, right? Usually if they get a double or single on you, it's because you're, you were unprepared and you left space and they got in on the inside. But if you control the situation and you get height advantage, then you can force your opponent into a very compromising position like turtle. You can even force them to give up the sweep sometimes. Yes, sir. Cool. We gave the people head. That's true. The head they needed. Yeah. <laughs> you, I knew we wouldn't get through this without actually making another joke. We have to bookend it. Okay, Matt, I got a question. I mean, you already know what God this God damn it. Is. I have to piss. Can you wait like three minutes? I mean, not really. Okay. How about I read the question? You go to the bathroom and then look. You already know what the question is. Do I? Yes. It's the space one. Space one? Yeah. Is this about NASA? <laughs> okay. Hey, Steve and Matt, <laughs> big fan of the podcast. It has been incredibly helpful in my white belt journey. Just leveled up to blue belt last week, largely thanks to you guys. So here's something I've been thinking about and would love to hear your thoughts on. 
As you may be aware, the U.S. military is working on building a space force. Politics aside, if humanity begins to colonize space, there will surely be a need to develop unarmed combat skills in a zero-G environment. How do you think combat will change? What existing things will no longer be effective? And what new strategies may emerge? I'll tell you what existing things won't be effective. That's hand-to-hand combat, in my opinion. It's going to be phasers. If we're talking about space technology when we're, there's wars going on in space, there's going to be weaponry that probably eliminates the need for hand-to-hand combat, I would imagine. I would think so. But what if it didn't? <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's have fun for a second. I, I don't know. I mean, the only thing I know that would work for certain, of course, is the choke that Joseph Gordon-Levitt did in Inception in Zero Gravity. Did, That's the only thing empirically yeah. proven to work. It was a triangle, right? Or was it I, an arm triangle? I thought it was a standing, like a cobra choke, cl- like a cobra clutch or an arm triangle or something. It's been a while since I watched it. But they were floating. They were floating, yeah. So there's no base. Exactly. Oh, God, Hollywood. Yeah, I know. Uh, it's It's actually hard to say, right? I mean... I guess you could hit that. Yeah, like the, if you break the alignment of their shoulder enough, you yeah, could hit that. you got the trick is you would have to find a way to to basically get base without using the floor, and that would mean you'd you'd have to get base by like torquing your opponent's body or by kicking off or pushing off onto like something else, right? It would be very very hard to get a, like a regular submission where we rely on the presence of gravity. I think some things like a, a twister would work. I think a rear naked choke would work. Yeah, you can, with, yeah. the, with the hooks? Because you can still... With, tethered. You, yeah, because if you have the hooks, you can torque your opponent's body, right? You can get leverage by pulling off of their own body. Yeah. So something like that would work. I think a guillotine would also work for the same reason, um, assuming you can get hooks or get your get basically wrap them in your guard. Uh, I think a triangle... Maybe, maybe. Can we assume we're wearing geese? Of course. <laughs> of course. Because if we go to space, <laughs> clearly we're going to be wearing geese. A- absolutely. This is definitely gee. Uh, so if you can figure out a way to worm guard, that is not out. You could definitely do that in space. Worm guard in space. Yeah. Well, we have talked about the wormhole before. I don't know if that works because it, it, it relies on your opponent standing. Yes. Unless you're doing the Polish worm rider, which is also a space <laughs> verified technique. Look, at this point, honestly, I would... My concern is not going to space and fighting. My concern is not getting killed by this stupid virus. So let's get past that, and then we can worry about space after that. Right now, let's deal with this virus. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Okay. So um, if you want to, as always, if you want to support the show, you can uh, go to bjjmentalmodels.com. That's where we've got our online database of concepts. On there, we further discuss what we talk about here, and we have articles that explain these mental models. You can also go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash join, where you can sign up for our mailing list. We send show notes and more content to people who are on our mailing list, so there's more details and other stuff that we provide there. You can go to bjjmentalmodels.com slash store, where you can support the podcast by buying patches, t-shirts. Very, very helpful, since we're probably going to be somewhat unemployed for the next while. (laughs) Please help me. Yeah, um, and of course, you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook and just get more frequent status updates from the two of us. Um, so yeah, I mean, I guess we can wrap this up. This is obviously an unusual episode. Things are developing super fast. Our plan at this point in time is to continue recording and to continue giving you guys stuff. Um, of course, situation might change, but our hope is that we can still be there for you during this really difficult time. I mean, I know that Probably at this point, almost all of you are not training anymore, and we don't know how long this thing has been going on for. The one thing that a lot of people have said about our show that's been helpful is that it supplements what you get on the mats. We provide something that is really different from what almost anyone else provides. You know, this is 
Our goal is to give you something that can help you learn jujitsu while you're sitting at home, while you're doing the chores, while you're in the car. So the good news is I'm hoping that our model for, for education is still going to be valuable to you, maybe more valuable than ever during this period. But of course, as always, you know, we're close to all of you guys. We appreciate your support. Please do stay safe, avoid dangerous situations of, you know, social distancing and flattening the curve. These are super important concepts. I know that when, you know, society hasn't completely collapsed, sometimes hard to see the urgency, but like as of this time, like we can look at other countries and see just how bad this can get. I'm hoping we can avoid that fate. Um, but if you are in one of those, those very dangerous countries, then man, we, we feel for you. I hope that things get better. Yeah. Yeah. On another note, I'm guessing you probably really have to go pee. I have to go so bad okay. right now. <laughs> All right, let's wrap this up. All right, okay. guys. Thanks, thanks for listening. Guys. Take care. Bye.